Welcome to another episode of Fireside Fairy Tales with narrator Chell. This episode, we take a deeper look into The Maiden in the Tower. For girls of yore and contemporary times, there are few tropes as compelling as The Maiden in the Tower, a lonely young woman trapped in a tower with no escape, only a small window through which to watch the world go by. For some girls, the tower is society. For others, it is an overbearing family. For our trans sisters, the tower can symbolize the incorrect gender that they were assigned at birth. Whatever our tower is, the reason is as valid as our attempt to escape. Arguably, the earliest Maiden in the Tower tropes can be attributed to pre-Christian mythology, with stories such as the Greek myth of Perseus, whose mother, Princess Danae, was confined to a bronze tower by her own father, the King of Argos in an attempt to prevent her from becoming pregnant, as it was foretold by the Oracle of Delphi that she would bear a son who would kill his grandfather. There is also the Baltic solar goddess, Sale, who is held captive in a tower by a king and rescued by the Zodiac using a giant sledgehammer. Even the Christians get in on this trope with Saint Barbara of Nicomedia, who is a beautiful young girl confined to a tower by her father to hide her away from the world. While in the tower, she converted to Christianity and is ultimately martyred for her faith after a series of miracles delaying her execution. I would argue that one of the most famous maidens in the tower is the Lady of Shalott, a lyrical ballad by Alfred Tennyson inspired by the Arthurian tale of Elaine of Astolat, or Astolat, I don't know, Astolat. The Lady of Shalott suffers from a mysterious curse and must continually weave images on her loom without ever looking directly out at the world. Instead, she looks into a mirror which reflects the busy road and the people of Camelot who pass by the little island where her tower sits. One day, she spies the reflection of Sir Lancelot riding by and she is so taken with him that she finally says, fuck it, and decides to look out her window towards Camelot properly. Instantly, the curse is upon her, and figuring she doesn't have much time, Elaine leaves her tower, finds a boat upon which she writes her name, and floats down the river to Camelot. She dies before arriving at the palace. Among the knights and ladies who see her is Lancelot, who remarks upon her loveliness. In the collection Reframing the Pre-Raphaelites, Historical and Theoretical Essays, Christian Poulson theorizes that, quote, the Lady of Shalott's escape from her tower was an act of defiance, a symbol of female empowerment." End quote. Based on Poulsen's view, escaping from the tower allows for the Lady of Shalott to emotionally break free and come to terms with female sexuality. In which case, death can be interpreted as sleep. Poulsen says that sleep has a connotation of physical abandonment and vulnerability, which can either suggest sexual fulfillment or be a metaphor for virginity. Obviously, we cannot even mention this trope without acknowledging the most famous maiden in the tower, Rapunzel. The earliest surviving text to feature a young maiden with long hair that she offers to a male lover to climb like a ladder appears in the epic poem Shahanameh by Persian poet Ferdowsi, sometime between the year 977 and 1010 CE. The heroine of the story, Rudaba offers her luxurious ebony tresses so that her love interest Zal may enter the harem where she lives. Zal suggests instead that she should lower a rope so that she will not hurt herself. Hey, what a thoughtful dude. 
The young lovebirds wish to be married, but their fathers have reservations due to Rudaba being the descendant of the demon king. Eh, it happens. Due to this history, both fathers are reluctant to allow the union, but a prophecy that Zal and Rudaba's union will produce the most glorious son to protect Persia brings everybody around. There is so much more to this tale than this, I am completely not doing it justice, but we're just here for the motif that laid the groundwork for the then subsequent Euro-Christian era tale that we currently know as Rapunzel. Rapunzel herself comes from a story entitled Petrosinella, which mm, translates to parsley published in the local dialect of Naples in 1634 in a collection translated to The Story of Stories by, oh, I'm gonna try this one, folks, Giambattista Basil. According to Lauren J. Getty in her essay, Maidens and Their Guardians, reinterpreting the Rapunzel tale, the Grimm's brothers, in their nationalistic hubris, assumed they were preserving a traditional German folk tale when they adapted the first officially renamed Rapunzel story, published by Friedrich Schultz in 1790. However, Schultz's version was merely a translation, almost word for word, with, you know, a name change, from the 1698 French story Personnet, written by, okay, here we go, here, here's, here comes out the French, by Charlotte, Charlotte, Charlotte Rose de, de, de Calmont de la Force, de la Force, a lady in waiting at the court of King Louis XIV, aka the Sun King. While I am going to forego the full retelling of the Grimm's version of Rapunzel, I do want to compare and contrast the original Neapolitan version and its subsequent French version. There was once upon a time a woman named Pascadozia who was in the family way and as she was standing one day at a window which looked into the garden of an ogress, she saw a beautiful bed of parsley, for which she took such a longing that she was on the point of fainting away. And being unable to resist her desire, she watched until the ogress went out and then plucked a handful of it. But when the ogress came home and was going to cook her pottage, she found that someone had been at the parsley and said, Ill luck to me, but I'll catch this long-fingered rogue and make him repent it, and teach him to his cost that everyone should eat off his own platter and not meddle with other folks' cups. The poor women went again and again down into the garden until one morning the ogress met her and in a furious rage exclaimed, Have I caught you at last, you thief, you rogue? Prithee, do you pay the rent of the garden that you come in this impudent way and steal my plants? By my faith, but I'll make you do penance without sending you to Rome. Poor Pascadozia, in a terrible fright, began to make excuses, saying that neither from gluttony nor the craving of hunger had she been tempted by the devil to commit this fault, but from her being pregnant and the fear she had lest the child should be born with a crop of parsley on its face. And she added that the ogress ought rather to thank her for not having given her sore eyes. Words are but wind, answered the ogress. I am not to be caught with such prattle. You have closed the balance sheet of life. Unless you promise to give me the child you bring forth, girl or boy, whichever it may be. Poor Pascadozia, in order to escape the peril in which she found herself, swore with one hand upon another to keep the promise. So the ogress let her go free. But when her time was come, Pascadozia gave birth to a little girl, so beautiful that she was a joy to look upon. 
who, from having a fine sprig of parsley on her bosom, was named Petrosinella. And the little girl grew from day to day until when she was seven years old, her mother sent her to school. And every time she went along the street and met the ogress, the old woman said to her, tell your mother to remember her promise. And she went on repeating this message so often that the poor mother, having no longer patience to listen to the music, said one day to Petrosinella, if you meet the old woman as usual and she reminds you of the hateful promise, answer her, take it. When Petrosinella, who dreamt of no ill, met the ogress again and heard her repeat the same words, she answered innocently as her mother had told her, Whereupon the ogress, seizing her by the hair, carried her off to a wood, which the horses of the sun never entered, not having paid the toll to the pastures of those shades. Then she put the poor girl into a tower, which she caused to arise by her art, and which had neither gate nor ladder, but only a little window, through which she ascended and descended by means of Petrosinella's hair, as the sailor is used to run up and down the mast of a ship. Now it happened one day, when the ogress had left the tower, that Petrosinella put her head out of the little window and let loose her tresses in the sun. And the son of a prince passing by saw those two golden banners, which invited all souls to enlist under the standard of love, and beholding with amazement in the midst of those gleaming waves a siren's face that enchanted all hearts, he fell desperately in love with such wonderful beauty and sending her a memorial of sighs, she agreed to receive him into favor. Matters went on so well with the prince that there was soon a nodding of heads and a kissing of hands, a winking of eyes and bowing, thanks and offerings, hopes and promises, soft words and compliments. And when this had continued for several days, Petrosinella and the prince became so intimate that they made an appointment to meet and agreed that it should be at night when the moon plays at hide with the stars and that Petrosinella should give the ogress poppy juice and draw up the prince with her tresses. So when the appointed hour came, the prince went to the tower where Petrosinella, letting fall her hair at the given signal, he seized it with both his hands and cried, draw up. And when he was drawn up, he crept through the little window into the chamber. The next morning before the sun taught his steeds to leap through the hoop of the zodiac, the prince descended by the same golden ladder to go his way home. And having repeated these visits many times, a gossip of the ogress, who was forever prying into things that did not concern her, and poking her nose into every corner, got to find out the secret, and told the ogress to be upon the lookout, for that Petrosinella made love with a certain youth, and she suspected that matters would go further, adding that she saw what was going on, and feared they would be off and away before May. The ogress thanked her gossip for the information and said she would take good care to stop up the road. And as to Petrosinella, it was moreover impossible for her to escape, as she had laid a spell upon her so that unless she had in her hand the three gal nuts, which were in a rafter in the kitchen, it would be labor lost to attempt to get away. Whilst they were talking thus together, Petrosinella, who stood with her ears wide open and had some suspicion of the gossip, overheard all that passed. And when night had spread out her black garments to keep them both from the moth, and the prince had come as usual, she made him climb onto the raptors and find the gullmets, knowing well what effect they would have, as she had been enchanted by the ogress. Then, having made a rope ladder, they both descended to the ground, 
took to their heels and scampered off towards the city. But the gossip happening to see them come out set up a loud halloo and began to shout, make such a noise that the ogress awoke. And seeing that Petronella had fled, she descended by the same ladder, which was fastened to the window, and set off running after the lovers, who, when they saw her coming at their heels faster than a horse let loose, gave themselves up for lost. But Petronella, recollecting the gallnuts, quickly threw one to the ground, and lo, instantly a Corsican bulldog started up. Oh, mother, such a terrible beast, which with open jaws and barking loud flew at the ogress as if to swallow her at a mouthful. But the old woman, who was more cunning and spiteful than the devil, put her hand into her pocket and pulling out a piece of bread, gave it to the dog, which made him hang his tail and allay his fury. Then she turned to run after the fugitives, but Petrosinella, seeing her approach, threw the second gallnut on the ground, and lo, a fierce lion arose, who, lashing the earth with his tail and shaking his mane, and opening wide his jaws a yard apart, was just preparing to make a slaughter of the ogress, when, turning quickly back, she stripped the skin off an ass that was grazing in the middle of a meadow, and ran at the lion, who, fancying it a real jackass, was so frightened that he bounded away as fast as he could. The ogress, having leaped over this second ditch, turned again to pursue the poor lovers, who, hearing the clatter of her heels and seeing the cloud of dust that rose up to the sky, conjectured that she was coming again. But the old woman, who was every moment in dread lest the lion should pursue her, had not taken off the ass's skin. And when Petrosinella now threw the third gallnut, there sprang up a wolf, who, without giving the ogress time to play any new trick, gobbled her up just as she was in the shape of a jackass. So the lovers, being now freed from danger, went their way leisurely and quietly to the kingdom of the prince, where, with his father's free consent, he took Petrosinella to wife. And thus, after all these storms of fate, they experienced the truth that one hour in port, the sailor freed from fears, forgets the tempest of a hundred years. The end. Although Basile's work fell into obscurity, Basile, Basile. Although Basile's work fell into obscurity, the brothers Grimm, in their third edition of Grimm's Fairy Tales, praised it highly as the first national collection of fairy tales, fitting their romantic nationalist views on fairy tales and as capturing the Neapolitan boy. This drew a great deal of attention to the work. Here's a direct quote from Wilhelm Grimm. This collection was for a long time the best and richest that had been found by any nation. Not only were the traditions at the time more complete in themselves, but the author had a special talent for collecting them. And besides that, an intimate knowledge of the dialect. The stories are told with hardly any break, and the tone, at least in the Neapolitan tales, is perfectly caught. We may therefore look on this collection of 50 tales as the basis of many others. For although it was not so in actual fact, and was indeed not known beyond the country in which it appeared, and was never translated into French, it still has all the importance of a basis, owing to the coherence of its traditions. Two-thirds of them are, so far as their principal incidents are concerned, to be found in Germany and are currently there at this very day. Basile has not allowed himself to make any alteration, scarcely even any addition of importance, and that gives his work a special value. While both the original Basile and, Ma and Mademoiselle de la Force related their fairy stories for the amusement of, of the aristocracy in their respective countries, 
It was De La Force who added an ironic and false naivete, which perversely masks and indicates eroticism, willfully undermining what she felt was the ugly, folk-orientated aspects of the tale in its various forms. This salope arrogant went so far as to claim that she came up with the story entirely. <laughs> the audacity, right? It is unsurprising that when Jakob Grimm adapted the Schultz version, he replaced all of the mm, aristocratic fairy frou-frou with Christian clean peasant imagery in the hopes of reverting the tale back to its core, even though he mistakenly thought it was a German folktale to begin with. But in fairness, I'm gonna go ahead and retail Personette. Once upon a time, the tale begins. A young couple prepares for the birth of their child, and all is well until the wife conceives a passionate craving for parsley. Her doting husband steals the parsley out of a fairy's enchanted garden. The gate stands temptingly open, implying the fairy knows very well what will happen, and may indeed have magically caused the craving that sets this tale in motion. The second time the husband sneaks into the garden, again he finds the gate open, the fairy catches him and demands his unborn child as payment. The man agrees after a short deliberation. When his wife gives birth to a beautiful baby girl, she promptly hands the child over to the fairy without a word of protest. The fairy raises the child tenderly until Personette, as she's come to called, reaches the age of puberty. Then, in order to keep the girl safe from harm, <clears throat> the eyes and attention of men, the fairy builds a magnificent silver tower deep in the forest. It contains all that the girl could desire. Large and airy rooms elegantly furnished, wardrobes full of sumptuous clothes, delicious meals that are gracefully served by invisible servants, books, paints, and instruments so personette need never be bored. What it doesn't have is a door or stairs. So whenever the fairy comes to call, she says, Personette, let down your hair, and she climbs up through the window. Years pass, and one day the son of a king is hunting in the forest nearby. He hears the maiden singing and falls in love with her, sight unseen. He finds his way to the tower and spies a shadowy figure above. But when he calls to her, Personette takes fright. It's been many years since she's seen a man and the fairy has told her that some are monsters who can kill with a single look. The prince leaves discouraged, but he cannot forget the sound of that lonely, lovely voice. He makes inquiries in a nearby village and learns that the girl is a fairy's prisoner. The prince returns, waits, and watches how the fairy goes in and out of the tower. The next day, when the fairy is gone, he stands and calls out in the fairy's voice, Personette, let down your hair. Her long gold hair comes tumbling down. He climbs and steps into the tower. Personette is frightened once again, but she soon recovers her aplomb as the prince persuades her of his love. He proposes to marry her there and then, and she consented without hardly knowing what she was doing. Even so, she was able to complete the ceremony. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, coquettish giggle. The prince continues to visit the tower, and before long, Personette grows fat. Innocent, she doesn't know she's pregnant, but the fairy certainly does. Furious, the fairy takes up a knife and cuts off Personette's long braids, that she sends her off in a flash of fairy magic to a remote place. The fairy hangs the braids from the tower window and waits for the prince to come. He clambers over the windowsill and is shocked to find his lover gone. 
The fairy angrily informs the prince he'll never see Percinet again, and she flings him from the tower. He lands in Briar Thorns, which blind him. For several years, the prince wanders the world, living on charity, till at last he reaches a remote place where he hears his wife singing. Percinet now has twin children who instantly recognize the blind man as their father. Percinet cries with joy and her tears magically restore his sight. But wait, the fairy is still angry and not yet prepared to leave them be. The food in the larder meant for Percinet and her children turns into stones. The well fills up with venomous snakes. The birds in the sky above turn into fire-breathing dragons. The little family huddles together, preparing to die of the fairy's wrath. But the lovers are happy, nonetheless, to have found each other at long last. At this, the fairy's heart finally melts. She sees that their love is strong and true. She forgives them, blesses their marriage, and transports them to the king's castle, where the king and queen welcome their son and his family with open arms. The end. I'd like to give a special shout out to the Maiden in the Tower variants found along the Mediterranean from Little Parsley and Little Fennel in Malta, Angiola in Sicily, Romiglia in Italy, and Anthosa the Fair with Golden Hair in Greece. All of these variants have a, the magic and a much more involved and not as passive heroine, mostly taken from the Petrosanella tell rather than the Personet. Continuing on, let's break down some of the most prevalent symbols and motifs found in the Rapunzel slash Personet and Petrosanella tale. I'm gonna use interchangeably Ogress, Witch, Fairy, Mother Goth because all of those are applicable to essentially the, the female figure that ends up locking our heroine in her tower. First, we have a garden at the beginning of our tale. A garden which does not belong to the pregnant woman, yet she covets the vegetation within. Sound familiar? Undoubtedly, in these God-fearing times, this was meant to be an allusion to Eve and the forbidden fruit within the Garden of Eden. It is curious that the earliest Petrosanella stories begin with the mother stealing the herb herself, but in later tales, evolves to have a long-suffering husband fetch the desired snack. The Tower. Listen, I hate Freud and all those other bastards just as much as the next woman, but it cannot be ignored that the mother Gothel ogress fairy figure locks Rapunzel up in the tower in an attempt to delay the inevitable life cycle of adulthood and, parent and parental separation, not to mention the sexual advances of men. In Shelley Duvall's fairy tale theater, the witch is comically obsessed, like over the top, with not just hiding Rapunzel from the eyes of men, but instilling her own fear and paranoia of men in Rapunzel herself. And yet, Rapunzel is essentially locked up in a large phallus, representing the futility of her captor's attempts to squash her budding sexuality. The Eyes of Knowledge The prince is blinded, typically by jumping out of the tower to escape the wrath of Mother Gothel, fitting punishment for the instigator to Rapunzel's ultimate departure as his quote-unquote sight or worldly knowledge is what led Rapunzel astray. The prince was physically forced into blindness, aka ignorance, an aimless wanderer lost of knowledge on how to go home or find his love. He is only healed months to years later through Rapunzel's tears, tears which spring from eyes which have been fully opened to the world outside of her tower. 
she heals him with the very body part which was incapacitated. Now that he is healed by her, they are on much more equal footing. Both of their eyes have been open. Pretty fitting that in Disney's Tangled, the love song is entitled, I See the Light. In the film, Rapunzel sings of being quote-unquote blind as an ignorance from the world outside of her tower, while Flynn Rider, her love interest, sings of a previously aimless life. It's a lovely callback to the original tale and my favorite aspect of the tale itself. Now bear with me for a moment. I'd like to contribute my own boiling hot take to the symbolism and motif list within Rapunzel. As a practicing pagan, I see the three female roles in this tale similarly to the triple goddess. The maiden in Rapunzel, the mother as the mother, and Mother Gothel Ogress Fairy as the crow. The lines, however, are blurred with the latter as the fairy figure adopts the title of mother and indeed, by all intents and purposes, does love Rapunzel or at least cares for her and takes care of her. But she uses her crone or wise woman knowledge of the world to turn into fears which guide her decisions in imprisoning Rapunzel trying to keep her the maiden forever. Rapunzel herself cannot stay maiden forever, and in the third act of the tale transition, either literally or figuratively, into mother after leaving her tower. Even when she is pregnant, usually in complete ignorance of the conception, Rapunzel is still maiden. Only the knowledge gained from experiencing the world outside of her tower is Rapunzel permitted to transition fully into mother. Now we're going to leave Rapunzel and we're going to close out the episode with another maiden in the tower tale, this time from Egypt, called Leah, daughter of Morgan. I'm reading directly from Folk Tales of Egypt by Hassan M. El Shami in his collection Folk Tales of Egypt. Once there was a king and his wife who did not have any children. One day the queen prayed to God, O oh God, my God, who hears my prayers, be kind to me and grant me a child. I will name him Yusuf. She made a pledge. If I have a child, I will make three wells and fill them, one with honey, one with butter, and one with rose water. Time passed. One day went and one day came, and she became pregnant. She had a boy whom she called Yusuf. The king and his wife almost flew with joy. One year after another, Yusuf grew up. With time, while the king was asleep, he heard a supernatural voice say, King, fulfill your pledge. Fulfill the pledge that you owe. This happened three times. Every time the king forgot. Yusuf became ill. They got him all of the kingdom's doctors and the sheiks. No one could cure him. Finally, they said, maybe there is an unfulfilled pledge? Think, have you made a pledge, king? The king and the queen remembered their promise. Immediately, the king ordered that the three large wells be dug and lined with china tile and filled to the top, one with honey, the second with butter, and the third with rose water. And he dispatched a crier to announce in town, O oh God's people, people of this town, he who wants honey, butter, and rose water should come tomorrow to the king's palace. With the appearance of the morning star, everyone in town was rushing to the king's palace. This one carrying a saucepan, that one carrying a wash tub, and this one and that one. They clustered around on the three wells and immediately 
they were empty. After a short while, there was nothing at all. A while later, an old woman came leaning on a cane. She had three cans on a tray, which she carried on top of her head. When she found that the wells were empty, she took out a little piece of sponge and began sponging the drops off the walls of the wells. After a very long time, she had hardly filled her three small cans, and she turned back to go home. Now the king's son, Yusuf, was playing with his ball. He threw his ball and it hit the old woman. She fell on the ground and everything was spilled. Yusuf ran to her and said, Never mind, old mother, I am in the wrong. The woman answered, With what can I curse you? With what can I curse you, son? You are too young. I am going to curse you with Lulia, daughter of Morgan. And she left. He went to his father and mother and asked them, Who is Lulia, daughter of Morgan? They answered him, Son, you are too young. You should have nothing to do with these things. Every time he asked someone, the answer was, You have nothing to do with these things. Finally, an old servant said to him, she is a beautiful girl that you have to find yourself. That was it. He went to his mother and father and said, prepare rations for me. I am going out into the world. I have to find Lulia, daughter of Morgan. When they heard this, their hearts sank to their toes. They kept on crying and imploring him, don't do this son, stay away from her. No one has gone to find her and come back. We have no one else but you. He answered to them, it is no use. He finally took a horse, food and water, and some money and left. He kept on moving from God's countries to God's people. One town carried him and another town put him down until he inhabited part of the world where it seemed like the earth was at its end. He kept on traveling in the desert. After a while, he saw dust coming from a distance. It came closer and closer. He looked to find an ogre coming toward him. The moment the ogre was by his side, he greeted him. Peace be upon you, Father Ogre. The ogre answered, Had your greeting not preceded your speech, I would have devoured your flesh before gnawing on your bones. What do you want? Yusuf answered, I'm looking for Lulia, daughter of Morgan. The ogre said, Son, keep on going. You will meet my brother. He is one day older than I am and a year more knowledgeable. Yusuf kept on going until he saw another cloud of dust larger than the one before it. It came closer and closer. And finally, when the ogre was next to him, he said, Peace be upon you, Father Ogre. The ogre replied, Had your greeting not preceded your speech, I would have devoured your flesh before gnawing your bones. What do you want? Yusuf replied, I want to know how to reach Lulia, daughter of Morgan. The ogre said to him, Keep on going. Ahead you will meet my brother. He is one day older than myself and a year more knowledgeable. And so the journey repeated itself and the exchange and so on and so forth until two more brothers then passed. And when the fourth ogre asked Yusuf his wishes and Yusuf replied about Lulia, daughter of Morgan, this ogre said, ahead of you, you will find my sister and she is the only one who can tell you how to reach her. When you get there, if you find her with her red chicks around her and her hair combed and groomed, don't you dare say a word or make her feel your presence. But if you find her with her hair messed up and her green chicks around her and her breasts thrown over her shoulder, you can talk to her, for she is going to be in a good mood. Yusuf left and kept on going and going. When he reached the ogress's house, he hid and peeped. He saw that her hair was well-groomed and her red chicks were hopping up and down around her. 
he did not say a word and remained in his hiding place. After a while, about sunset, she messed up her hair and started catching her red chicks and eating them. She let out her green chicks from the pen and threw her breasts behind her back and started singing. Yusuf tiptoed behind her. The chicks saw him and shouted, somebody's coming. But she was singing so loudly that she did not hear them. Of course, <laughs> she was in a good mood. When Yusuf reached her, he suckled each of her breasts. She shouted, ah, now you are my milk son. What dost thou want? Yusuf replied, Lilia, daughter of Morgan. She said to him, why son, you are too young to die. Even if his head was against a thousand swords, he insisted and said, never, I have to find Lilia, daughter of Morgan. The ogre said, well, take this ball and this racket, hit the ball with the racket and wherever the ball goes, you follow it. They will take you to the place you want to go. Yusuf got back on his horse and struck the ball with the racket. The ball flew into the air, landed on the ground and kept on rolling. Yusuf mounted his horse and followed it. He kept on hitting the ball and running after it, hitting the ball and running after it, hitting the ball and running after it. Hit and run, hit and run, hit and run until finally he found himself in front of a huge palace in the middle of the desert. The palace was high and it had neither windows nor gates. He went around it and finally he saw one small window at the very, very top of the palace. As he stood wondering about this palace and thinking who might own it, he saw a huge dust cloud coming from far, far away. He heard a dog barking and a big commotion. He hid himself behind a big boulder and peeked out. He saw an ogre much larger than all the ogres he had previously met. The ogre came to the palace and shouted, Oh, Lulia, daughter of Morgan, let down your long hair and take your father, the ogre, away from the heat of the hill. Yusuf saw the little window open and out of it appeared a young woman whose beauty was indescribable. Glory be to the creator for this creation. She swung her hair out of the window and it came down until it reached the ground. Father Ogre climbed up on her hair. Pull, 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 and he was up. He got in and the window was shut. When he got inside, the ogre asked her, what have you cooked for us today? To which daughter replied, hmm, such and such, and served him what she had cooked. He ate and after he rested his head and went right to sleep. Outside, Yusuf kept himself hidden until the morning of the following day. The window opened and the hair was let down from it and the ogre climbed down on Lulia's hair. Yusuf waited until the dust disappeared before he came out of his hiding place and shouted, Oh, Lulia, daughter of Morgan, let your long hair down and take Yusuf, for whom you have been predestined, away from the heat of the hills. The window was opened and he looked up and saw her looking down. When she saw him, her heart softened for him. She fell in love with him. She said to him, what brought you here? Get away with your skin, for if my father sees you, he will kill you and drink from your blood. Yusuf said to her, before I go, lift me up and I will tell you my story. She swung her hair out and he climbed up. He told her his story from hello to goodbye and said to her, you are predestined for me and we must get back to the house of my father and mother. We must escape from here. Lulila said to him, escape to where? The distance we could cover in a day my father the ogre will cover in one step. As they were talking, they heard a big commotion and heard her father shouting, oh, Lulia, daughter of Morgan, 
let your long hair down and take your father away from the heat of the hills. She was frightened and gasped. What a catastrophe! My father the ogre is back. Where shall I hide you? Where shall I hide you? She transformed him into a pin and pinned it on her chest. When her father came up, he asked her, what took you so long? She said, nothing, I was just in the bath. The ogres started sniffing around saying, I smell a trace of a human, not of our race. He looked all over the place and did not find anything. He asked for his food and after he had eaten, he went to sleep. The following day, the ogre left as usual. As soon as he was gone, she pulled the pen out of her collar and it became Yusuf. She said to him, we must go now. She got some henna and tented everything in the house. She overlooked only one thing, the tambourine. It hid from her underneath the sofa. She took her comb, her sewing needle, and her mirror, and she went out with Yusuf. When Father Ogre returned, he started calling, Oh, Lulia, nobody answered. Oh, Lulia, nobody answered. Finally, when he became impatient, he started calling on everything in the house. Oh, chair. The chair said, uh, she is sitting on me. Oh, bed? The bed answered, uh, she is sleeping in me. The bathtub answered, she is bathing in me. Finally, the tambourine started dancing and singing. Tum to dum dum tum. Yusuf took her and flew. To two, Yusuf took her and flew. That was it. Father Ogre heard this and he went mad. He got his dogs to sniff around and they flew after them. Yusuf and Lulila kept on going until they finally saw the cloud of dust coming from afar. It kept on getting bigger and bigger until it blocked out the sun. Lulia took out her needle and threw it back over her shoulder. Immediately it became a field of thorns. The ogre and his dog went right through it. The thorns pierced their feet. The ogre kept saying to his dog, pluck out my dog and I'll pluck out with you. Pluck out my dog and I'll pluck out with you. Meanwhile, Yusuf and Lulia were far away. After a little while, the father ogre drew very near to them again. Lulia threw her comb back over her shoulder. The comb became a thick hedge of bamboo in which the ogre and his dog got lost in. Chop down my dog and I'll chop down with you. Yusuf and Lulia got a little bit further away from them. Eventually, the ogre drew very close to them again. Lulia threw her mirror back over her shoulder. Immediately, it became a lake. When the ogre got to it, he and his dog started drinking it. The ogre would say, drink my dog and I will drink. They kept on drinking and drinking and drinking until they exploded. Before the ogre died, he threw some pins at them. As soon as the pins struck them, Lulia became a she-dog and Yusuf became a lark. He flew away. Lulia kept on going until she reached Yusuf's parents. She lay down in front of the doorstep and kept on barking. No one paid any attention to her. Yusuf kept on coming back and hovering over the house and singing, How are you? How are you, Lulia? In the house of my father and mother. Lulia would answer back, Over me is dust. Underneath me is dust. Just like a dog's place of rest, Yusuf. One day Yusuf's mother heard her saying, Yusuf. She and Yusuf's father had become blind from crying over their son. She asked the dog, What did you say? It repeated what it had said. Yusuf's mother took her inside and made a bed of straw for her in the stable. The following day, Yusuf hovered over the house singing, How are you? How are you, Lulia? In the house of my father and mother. She answered back, 
Over me a straw, and underneath me a straw, just like a mare's place of rest, Yusuf. Yusuf's mother heard this, and she said to herself, something must be the matter with this dog. She took her upstairs and put her in a room with a bed of silk sheets and cover. The following day, when Yusuf hovered over the house singing, how are you, how are you, Lulia, in the house of my mother and father, she replied, over me is silk, and silk is underneath me, just like a prince's place of rest, Yusuf. Yusuf's mother was listening this time. She heard the whole thing. She entered the room and called the dog to her. She kept on feeling its body and caressing it with her hand. As she was passing her hand over its head, she found the three pins pierced deep in it. She pulled them out and immediately, the dog became a beautiful young lady. She told Yusuf's mother and father all, of, all that had happened, how her father imprisoned her, how Yusuf came to her. She said to them, get me some sugar and I will get Yusuf back. The following morning, Yusuf came back, hovering over the house and said, How are you, Lulia, in the house of my father and mother? She said, I have some sugar for you. And she put her hand with granulated sugar in it out the window. The lark perched on the palm of her hand to have some sugar. She caught it. She found three pins stuck in its head. As soon as she plucked them out, the lark, with God's omnipotence, became Yusuf again. He went and embraced his father and mother, their sight restored by God's will. Yusuf and Lulia got married, and the celebration lasted for 40 days and 40 nights. They lived in stability and prosperity and begat many boys and girls. The end. Thank you all so much for joining me for this episode of Fireside Fairy Tales. Feel free to check out my sources, which will all be listed and linked in the episode summary. Talk fairy tales with us on anchor.fm slash once upon a rewatch. Tweet us at once upon rewatch. Participate in episodic polls on Instagram at once upon rewatch. Follow us at once upon a rewatch.tumblr.com. If you enjoy once upon a rewatch, please leave us a review on Apple podcasts or on your platform of choice. The artwork for a podcast was by Lychee Ruru. We want to say a very special thank you to the master of free music, Kevin McLeod. Our intro music is Frost Waltz, and our outro music is Fairy Tale Waltz. This podcast uses material from episode-specific pages on the Once Upon a Time wiki at Fandom and is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike license. And remember, all plot devices come with a price.